Are you an American? Are you looking to get stress blind? Tired of consuming and perceiving? We have the treatment for you. <laughs> Oliver Stone's JFK. Where you can just let the movie dictate what you think <laughs> and not ask any more questions. <laughs> Take it as gospel. My God! Go stress blind and stop seeing all the horrible today. I can't. <laughs> I'm already angry. My blood pressure is already elevated. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Mm. I know it's a rough one. I had one ass this year and I got it. This is what I wanted. So I'm sorry I didn't want your blood pressure like up there, you know, but you wanted me a little frazzled. I wanted to have a conversation. <laughs> I wanted to have a colorful <laughs> conversation about this. And I'm getting that. So. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where what is past is prologue. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are covering part two of Oliver Stone's 1991 dramatization, JFK. Ah, Jifka. Jifka. Jifka is here. Oh my goodness. And guys, you know, two days from now, it's the 60th anniversary of the infamous assassination. Yeah. 60 years and we're still crying. I know. I know. It's like... It's going to be 15 more years for all those before all those documents are released. You know how the Lincoln assassination like just became funny? Uh-huh. Well, I... They skipped, the, they skipped in line for the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> Culturally, we really did. We really did. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M must bot the app to control the narrative. <laughs> you can Oliver Stone made a movie to control the narrative. Oh my god, call Oliver Stone. <laughs> we need a film about the takeover of Twitter. No! Yes! No! Yes! God. I'm kidding. No, you're right. You can write. He, you're right. He cannot be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> you can write the show at kicking and streaming podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And editing, Carrie, remember to adjust the volume on this because we're going to be yelling. <laughs> and also be practicing the three R's rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join this little crazy watch party we got going on here. Oh my God. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. I literally have to believe that. And that's all right. <laughs> and you know, the, the, seeing is believing. Oh, stop. I'm kidding. Absolutely no. stop. <laughs> so in lieu of a trailer this week, why don't you remind the little onions uh, in so many words where we were at the end of part one. Yeah, no, guys, Oliver Stone's film is the dramatization of uh, uh, New uh, Orleans Parish District Attorney Jim Garrison's investigation into the death of John F. Kennedy. And guys, I'm sorry, I really don't have the time. No. I don't have the time. If you have not listened to part one of this coverage, please go back and listen to that. If you need front-loading for this, you're going to need to do the most of it there, okay? Because mm -hmm. where we left off was one of our uh, key witnesses in building our case, Mr. David Ferry, as portrayed by Joe Pesci. Um, we've cornered him. And because the uh, news of the investigation has gotten out to the media, David Ferry is now being scrutinized by not only the media, but some uh, unsavory characters he might be involved with Ooh. in the conspiracy to murder President John F. Kennedy. And so when we left off, 
Ferry had just kind of gone on this tirade to District Attorney Jim Garrison and his associates, Bill Broussard and Lou Ivan or whatever the name is. It's Lou Ivan. Yeah. And, um, you know, he basically was just kind of telling Garrison, this is way too fucking big for you, bucko. Like, not even the shooters know who killed JFK. Like, it's it's a mystery. Wrapped inside of an enigma or whatever he says. Don't you get it? <laughs> and like, he's like, they'll get to you too, man. And he's like, yeah, we'll testify, Dave. We'll protect you. And he's like, no, they'll get to you too. And he's so exhausted that he can't think straight. And so are we. <laughs> yeah. This movie just throws so much at you. And we'll talk more about it later. But oh boy, will we ever. If you guys are prepared to sit for a second. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. But guys, you really do have to listen to part one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's 90 minutes of your time. If you're working today or you're on a long commute, just go ahead and refresh yourself. <laughs> like, it's In case just, you're not up to date on your feed. It's so much. Like, I just, I can't. The one way I would characterize this investigation, not to downplay its importance, but to say that Jim Garrison is kind of the Lisa Simpson of this uh, movie, and by that, I'm thinking of Ned Flanders in that one episode where he goes, oh, do I hear the sound of butting in? It must be little Lisa Simpson, the answer to a question no one asked. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. There are reasons to love this film and reasons to hate it, and we will talk about it all basically at the end. So (sighs) if you want to fast forward, don't. Please. We spend so much time on this content. Please listen to it anyway. And this is where I will give you your reminder that if you're going to yell, and I know you will. Yell past the mic. Yeah, please don't yell into my ears. All right, all right. (laughs) All right. My God. So, basically, when we pick back up after David Ferry tells us he's so tired he can't see straight. We see that at the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office in New Orleans, where our story is set, we see that the media of the world is descending on Jim Garrison's office. From places I've never heard of! Yeah, no, things are kind of breaking down a little bit on the team. Everybody's stressed, you know? Who wants to quit? (laughs) Exactly. Everybody raises their hands! We're, We're well in over a year into this investigation, and there's so much information, and... I, to my my thing is he's the district attorney, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's got to be other things he has to work on, right? Like you also are, have to remember that there are other DAs and ADAs. I that, just don't think it's right for a DA to focus like that. Like it just yeah. The answer to a question no one asked. I just I, I get it. I get it, dude. I mean, it's not even his purview. His purview is New Orleans, Louisiana. Not Dallas, Texas. <laughs> yeah. Like, or even Washington, D.C. Yeah, like... My God. And so Lou, you know, Garrison's investigator. Lou is stressing that David Ferry, who we were just with, needs better protection. And like yesterday. <laughs> because if he is going to come on board with us, he's kind of the key to a lot here. And will be definitely the target of violence if everything we've been led to believe is true. And just as Jim is announcing that he's going to be traveling to Washington, D.C. to meet with a man who has reached out to him about some information he might find interesting, we have... What is... What is Wayne Knight's character's name in this movie? I don't know, and I don't care. Something with an R. I literally just wrote Wayne Knight. I wrote Newman. Newman? (laughs) From Seinfeld. Because Wayne Knight is Newman on Seinfeld. (laughs) 
<laughs> Newman announces that he has discovered that the whole of the district attorney's office has been bugged. He shows one of the little recording devices he found to Jim, and <laughs> and he's like, Newman's like, well, well, this is what I'm saying. You got to be careful here. All these new interns, one of these people is talking. Like somebody is leaking information. We're gonna have to be more careful. All these new volunteers. I mean, any one of them. Okay, okay, okay. You handle it. I don't have. I don't have time for this nonsense. Well, we we obviously got the bastards worried now. I'm coming to Washington. I just love the way Jim goes, well, we obviously got the bastards worried now. And then yells at the ceiling, I'm coming to Washington. <laughs> and then he turns around to realize Lou is on the phone receiving the information that David Ferry is in fact dead of an apparent suicide. Okay. And All right. <laughs> apparent is the word here. And we're going to transition to David Ferry's apartment. We've been here once already. See part one. But um, your space is your mind. And he's got quite a mind. And quite a space, guys. Because remember, David Ferry had cancer. And he was trying to find a cure on his own by experimenting on mice. So Ooh. there's like mice in cages everywhere. And he's got... He's got his outfits everywhere and his wigs and his makeup. This is a closeted gay man. Anyway. And like there's like sick mountains of cigarette butts everywhere. Empty pill bottles, empty liquor bottles. There's manifesto material and wouldn't there be? Of course. Not to mention syringes and trash. Like, oh, this is, this is, a, uh, I can't even. <laughs> whatever Dave Ferry was going through in those last days of his life. I know it smells crazy in there I, ooh, <laughs> it makes it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up thinking about how foul that apartment smells and guys if you'll remember fairy was the one that was this that was allegedly helping oswald with the castro campaign because oswald's apparently a cia agent and so that's gonna be big in this conspiracy case right <gasps> and so the coroner says it's probably natural cause all right. <laughs> and, like, there's a suicide note, and... It's unsigned. To leave this life is, for me, a sweet prospect. I find nothing in it that is desirable, and on the other hand, everything that is loathsome goes on and on. Daily, we are propagandized more and more about a rising crime rate. Pretty flowery for Dave Ferry. When everything is being talked over about the scene and Jim is looking over like his vanity and it's like having flashes in his brain, black and white film flashes in his brain of fairy being murdered the night before. Yeah. Because they find a bottle of something called proloid and proloid is usually used for boosting metabolism yeah metabolic purposes and they're like it doesn't really strike me as someone who needs help with his metabolism because he already had high blood pressure yeah and so him taking an entire bottle of this metabolism booster would definitely have sent him into cardiac arrest and the shots we see of him supposedly being killed where these men are shoving pills down his throat and making him choke on them and you know jim is even like to the coroner hey Will this show up on an autopsy? And the coroner's like, no, I'd have to examine the spinal fluid, but, like, that's probably what did it. 
And then Susie comes in, Lori Metcalf. Yeah. You know, Jackie from Roseanne. <laughs> Susie comes in because she's an ADA and she's like, hey, boss. So, like, you know, Eladio Del Valle, the guy that was connected to running guns with Fairy for Operation Mongoose during the Castro campaign? Guess yeah, what? He was murdered last <laughs> night. Oh, no. And this is verifiable fact, by the way. A lot, I know this movie does a lot to twist your perceptions of things because of how it weaves realness in with the creations of the film. But no, this is verifiable. Verifiable fact, Eladio Del Valle and David Ferry died on the same day in 1967. Del Valle was chopped to death with a machete. I know, in, in Miami. His, in his car. Yeah. Like, not just chopped to death, also shot, also this, also that. It's overkill. But, you, but like, Eladio Del Valle was involved with gang activity, so who knows? Who knows? That's the thing. Ah. A machete seems like a really personal way to kill somebody, though, so who knows what he was involved in, but they have no more credible witnesses, guys. It looks like the case is over. Charles got respect, Lou. Newspaper editors, American Bar Association. I agree They're with Bill. We have got Charles is going to get whacked. Now, how many corpses is it going to take before you lawyers hey, figure out what's you going on? Barry did this to himself. And the way they are screaming at, screaming at each other over a body, over a crime scene, I'm like, you know what? Garrison, you've got to get your team in line oh, because no. yeah. you're being unprofessional right now. In that next scene where they're all sitting around the table talking about what their options are. And Bill and Lou don't see eye to eye. Oh no, what I literally wrote was, now everybody's mad at yelling at each other because the case is dead in the water. And I'm like, y'all. Get it together. The case keeps drawing more and more attention. Yeah. And if they don't handle this correctly, they're not going to be perceived as credible, and then they really won't have a case. After this meeting, you know, we see them all leaving, and all the, you know, reporters are crowding around Jim, and then Bill gets pulled aside by this supposed FBI agent. I didn't get a character name on this guy. All I know is that he's an FBI agent that's cornering Bill in the street. Yeah. And this is where we see some of the intrigue. That's working against Jim Garrison because Bill Broussard is, I guess, kind of half a mole. Is he, though? Yeah, that's what we're led to believe Okay, but by this interaction. But that's my question. Is that in any way documentable? I don't know. Okay. This FBI agent, that's, the, that's Oliver Stone for you. <laughs> this FBI agent says he knows that Bill was working the Castro thing and that Oswald didn't pull the trigger and Castro did. And if that ever came to light, there would be a war that would kill millions. But if that comes out, there's going to be a war, boy. Millions of people are going to die. And that's a hell of a lot more important than Jim Garrison. Damn it, look at me when I talk to you. You're goddamn too self. I can't. Shut up. Shut up. You got a brain in that thick skull of yours. Listen to me. You listen real hard. Now get in the car. And he takes him away. He does. In his car. Not by literal force, but Bill felt like he had no other choice but to go. I guess. What are you talking about, Oliver? (laughs) Where's Bill? Where's Bill? Where's Bill in all this? I would like to talk to real life Bill. Here we go, guys. Okay, here we go. Stay with me, please. Stay the fuck with me, please. Is this the Mr. X dump? We go to Washington, D.C. Oh, boy. And, you know, Jim's just walking about the Lincoln Memorial, and he is stopped by a gentleman saying his name walking up the stairs in the opposite direction. Glad you came. Sorry about the precautions. Well, I just hope it was worth my while, Mr. I could give you a false name, but I won't. Just call me X. I've already been warned by the agency, Mr. Whoever, so this is another type of threat. I'm not with the agency, Mr. Garrison. I 
And I assume if you've come this far, what I have to say interests you. This is Agent X, Mr. X, X, whatever you want to call him. Maybe we should call him Twitter. No, um, <laughs> stop. Yeah. No, I, I wrote, huh, I wondered when Don Sutherland was going to get here. I would like to actually call him Mr. Twitter. Mr. Twitter. No. Yeah. We are not calling him Mr. Twitter. <laughs> he's tweeting a lot. His like, name is Mr. X. He's tweeting a lot of things at Garrison. And based on what he says to Garrison, I do have a feeling this is a prearranged meeting. He just doesn't want to be anywhere where he could be heard by the walls. You know what I'm saying? The the Mr. X character is based on a real life individual, and we will get into that a little bit later. But Okay. Donald Sutherland, please welcome him to Kicking and Streaming. <laughs> yeah, I um, guess. I know him best from anti-war films from the 60s. <laughs> and I also know him because, uh, for my generation, because he is President Coriolanus Snow in the Hunger Games saga. Wait a minute, though. He was in Horrible Bosses. He was in Horrible Bosses. So, so we're not welcoming welcome, him. Welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that, Donald. Um, <laughs> um, so Yeah, Donald Sutherland, President Snow himself, won't identify himself. This part of the movie sounds like a deep conspiracy message board. No. Guys, you literally, if you don't listen, you're not going to follow. And even if you do listen, sometimes you don't follow. I can remember it, how many times it took me to watch this film from like the age 12 on Uh before I finally understood this part of the movie. No, I had to, I had to literally say, Jesus, take the wheel. Ross will know the information. (laughs) I can't type fast enough. So yeah, yeah. He X when he gets to talking to Garrison, and this whole sequence is spliced in between shots of Garrison and X talking with the dramatization of this narrative that X is spinning to Garrison, which is also spliced with archival footage. We talked about that in part one. It's super confusing and not ethical. It's really not. It's really not that ethical. <gasps> and so X tells Garrison that he's not with the agency. I'm assuming he means the CIA, but everything he's going to tell is classified top secret. What the fuck, X? Like, what why? Is, what is the point of any of this if he can't testify in a court of law? To be an Oliver Stone's film. Okay. Everything I'm going to tell you is classified top secret. I was a soldier, Mr. Garrison. Two wars. I was one of those secret guys in the Pentagon that supplies the military hardware, the planes, bullets, rifles, for what we call black operations. Black ops. Assassinations, coup d'etat, rigging elections, propaganda, psych warfare, and so forth. He's like, we did all the statecraft after World War II. And when I say statecraft, guys, I mean the United States government putting its finger in literally every pie so that it could remain on top. Meaning we're going to control the outcomes of elections, resources, and money throughout the world so that we can literally stay on top. Which in this day and age, we know is not only plausible, but probable. The United States is going to keep the Iron Throne at all costs. Not the Iron Throne! (laughs) And so he says he participated in all sorts of operations around the world. When he lists them, I'm like, oh my God, because I know these are all real interferences by the U.S. government. Uh-huh. And it's just, it, it, it has an air of legitimacy to it. But is there a single thing this guy says that is verifiable? That's my question. Well, then he says, and then there was Cuba. Oh boy. That one didn't go so good. We were really good at what we did, but Cuba didn't go so hot. And he said he was part of setting up all the bases for the potential invasions of Cuba, which Kennedy was poised to do. But remember, in the beginning, we ascertained that Kennedy believed the CIA was lying to him in order to get him to invade Cuba to take out Fidel Castro mm. because he was a socialist. The United States didn't like that. He, they thought it was 
threatening Latin American business interests. Okay. And yeah, the CIA loves to play with money. <laughs> Let me get into the Cuban thing. Not so good. Set up all the bases for the invasion. Supposed to take place in October 62. Mm-hmm. Khrushchev sent the missiles to resist the invasion. Kennedy didn't invade. We were standing out there with our dicks in the wind. A lot of pissed off people, Mr. Garrison. Kennedy went back on his word, though. He didn't invade, right? Mm -hmm. And this pissed off the CIA so bad that apparently it's going to lead to his death. Okay. So in 1963, X says he worked on a project to get all military personnel out of Vietnam by the end of 1965. Mm. And in November 1963, both John F. Kennedy and the president of South Vietnam, Diem, were both assassinated that same month. Oh. DM was assassinated on November 2nd, JFK 20 days later. All right. That is a fact. Uh-huh. And is, I'm sorry, a suspicious one that plays into the flames of this narrative. <sighs> and that's really fishy, right? And he says something really fishy happened to me. Something strange happened to me in between those two assassinations. Oh, when he got randomly sent to uh, Antarctica or the... Yep, the y- South Pole. Yeah, like, what the hell? You know, it, you know, he's being to the South Pole by his superior, who he is only going to refer to Garrison as as General Y. <laughs> General Y! He's he, to, to escort a, a military escort for international VIPs? What does that mean? Anybody could have done that. It didn't have to be him. Uh, like, well, like, what does that mean? What VIPs are going to the South Pole? To do what? <laughs> to party with penguins. You, you have to like, go through months of training to be allowed to visit the South Pole. Anyway. Like, he was on his way back to America in New Zealand when the president was killed. Mm-hmm. And he says this great little tidbit. Oswald was charged at 7 p.m. Dallas time with Tippett's murder. That's two o'clock in the afternoon of the next day, New Zealand time. But already, their papers had the entire history of this unknown 24-year-old man, Oswald. Studio picture, detailed biographical data, Russian information, and were pretty sure of the fact that he killed the president alone, although it took them four more hours before they even charged him with that crime in Dallas. That is, that, if what if what this supposed individual says is true, that I can't account for. That I can't make any sense. I also think it's a lie. <laughs> I also do not believe it's true. You're right. I think it's something Oliver Stone wrote for the film based on shit he wanted to believe is true from this very real person. But the thing is, Ross, who knows? Exactly. I, oh. Anyway, so I'm, I'm telling you not to yell. And- I know. He says a cover story was being put out all over the world about Oswald in exactly the same way they would in a black op. Okay. He says. He's like, I'm, I see you. I see what you're doing. Why was I, the chief of special ops, sent to the South Pole to do a job that a number of others could do? And it's because they knew I would ask questions. <laughs> he says one of his responsibilities would have definitely been additional intelligence security in Texas for the Texas trip. He he says it was standard operating procedure to supplement the Secret Service by the CIA. He says they would never have allowed the bubble top to be taken off of the limousine. They would have placed at least 200 agents along the entire route. Never would have allowed a man to open an umbrella. <laughs> at the time, the United States ambassador to the United Nations was Adlai Stevenson, who was Dwight D. Eisenhower's Democratic opponent in his two elections. He was assaulted in Dallas, Texas, right before the assassination. So there was, like, cause to put extra security out there for the actual presidential motorcade, which was not done 
Because this guy was in Antarctica. Yeah, and he's like, you know, he says there was so much that was overlooked that day that would not have been had he been present. Mm. And he says he was replaced because someone would ask questions. And this is a regurgitation of so much of Stone's rantings and conspiracist rantings. And oh yeah, it's this is... all pent up in this one character. It's not even like this real life person who I promise I will get to in a minute. It's not like it's all based solely off of the things that he told Stone. It's Stone compiling all these different ideas into this one character. Ascribing them to him for the sake of narrative, right? And legitimacy. Like Yeah, like I'm sorry. This is where, you know, you told me to pay attention to certain parts of the film, but this was a part I really paid attention to because I really just felt, as a person who has casual knowledge of the Kennedy assassination, but not hardcore information the way you do, I felt like I was being assaulted with things that were allegedly fact. Yes, I know it's a movie, but I also know that there is a certain responsibility that you're supposed to have when you're making a movie about an actual event where you have to portray things at least somewhat real. And so I feel like I'm being assaulted with so much information that I literally at this point am incapable of separating fact from fiction. Yeah, no, it's the, it's very artful. And it's characteristic of a propaganda film. Like the the director of this new Napoleon movie that Joaquin Phoenix is in. Gavin wants to see that. They're like criticizing this director for um, taking too much license and not being historically accurate and he's his little response to that was get a life and someone quoted that article and was like i think historical accuracy in film is actually very important yeah and i'm like because it may be the only thing that a single person sees about that topic x tells garrison the entire cabinet was on a plane over the pacific ocean that day that is a fact I think it was a coincidence, but that was a fact. He says at 12.34 p.m., the entire telephone system went out in Washington, D.C. for a solid hour. I don't know if this is fact. It probably is true. That seems like a very bold claim to make without legitimacy. But who are we talking about here? (laughs) The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to get the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive. (sighs) He says that the cabinet was placed over the Pacific that day to remove their perceptions. Plausible deniability. Because they are the most powerful executive officers in the executive branch besides the president and the vice president, who are both very much involved in the assassination. We put them on the water so they could have deniability. Exactly. (laughs) He says to Garrison that the Warren Commission was a complete fiction and that Alan Dulles, who was the director of the CIA during Kennedy's administration, like he says that it was completely wild that he was selected to oversee the commission. Because, well, Earl Chief Justice Earl Warren, of course, was selected to oversee the commission. But Alan Dulles was involved in a major way. Kennedy fired Alan Dulles from the CIA. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't he ejected? Because Alan Dulles was trying to get Kennedy to invade Cuba. And Kennedy didn't want to do that because it's unfucking necessary. <laughs> oh, my God. Cuba gets to decide its own destiny, not the United States. And he also tells him that Alan Dulles was General Wise's benefactor, his boss, X's boss. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Was that Warren? Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. 
Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia. Keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game, prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? X then goes on to divulge that in 1961, right after the Bay of Pigs, X says he participated in drawing up national security memos in which Kennedy instructed the Joint Chiefs to have complete responsibility for covert operations in peacetime. Which basically neutered the CIA. Yeah, the, and the CIA basically had all its toys taken away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so this led to the firing of Alan Dulles uh-huh. and a bunch of other sacred cows and intel. I like that phrase, sacred cows and intel. <laughs> he uses that a lot in this movie. And he says it never really happened the way Kennedy wanted it to happen because of bureaucratic resistance. And then... Agent X brings up the words Operation Mongoose. We know that phrase. We covered it extensively in the beginning. It was the exiled Cubans and the American intelligence agents getting ready for the all-out invasion of Cuba. According to David Ferry. Yes, according to David Ferry. And he says it was a whole CIA operation, Mongoose was. 300 agents, 700 select Cuban exiles, 50 fake business fronts to wage a non-stop war against Castro. And all of this was under the control of my superior, General Y. <laughs> General Y! Yeah, no, literally. <laughs> W-H-Y! His point is no war, no money. In saying that's why Kennedy was killed, was because he was going to stop the Vietnam War and the authority of the state over its people resides in war powers. No, guys, that's the thing. What we know about government spending on national defense and all that that entails with how that is crucial to maintaining power over constituents, I'm sorry, I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm saying it's very plausible. That's the, the, you pull us out of Vietnam and then nobody gets to play around with the war games anymore. Not only do we not get to justify the spending on defense, but we also don't get to hold that over Americans' heads as a point of fear-mongering. Kennedy was trying to close a lot of military installations, which led to the loss of immense money (laughs) for the government and the Defense Department and the intelligence community. (laughs) With this music playing in the background. Oh, it gets very dramatic. While he's saying all of these things, you just want to hit your head against the wall. (laughs) Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War in his second term, and that's why he was trying to do all these things. And while he was trying to do all these things, the deep state panicked and had him taken out. And it all ended on November 22nd, 1963. Allegedly. So this is what brings me to Leroy Fletcher Prouty. Leroy Fletcher Prouty is the man X is based off of. Really? Yes. How do we know that? He was chief of special operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President John F. Kennedy. Okay. All right. So that's on record somewhere. A colonel in the United States Air Force. Okay. All right. Okay. Subsequently became a critic of U.S. foreign policy, particularly covert activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. So we don't know. I'm using my hands. We don't know, but we know, right? Is that what you're saying? He's buried in Arlington Cemetery. Mm, Yeah, okay. He was a consultant on Oliver Stone's JFK. Mm. (laughs) He is actually the source of... Of many widely regarded conspiracy theories out there today about the United States. 
No one's guilty because everyone in the power structure who knows anything has a plausible deniability. There are no compromising connections except at the most secret point. But what's paramount is that it must succeed. No matter how many die, no matter how much it costs, the perpetrators must be on the winning side and never subject to prosecution for anything by anyone. That is a coup d'etat. He says General Y flew in the assassins from foreign countries. Allegedly. Of President Kennedy. He says it doesn't really matter who shot from what rooftop. It's all part of the scenery. He tells him then that on Tuesday, November the 26th, the day after Kennedy's funeral, new president Lyndon Baines Johnson says he's not going to take one soldier out of the war and signs National Security Memo 273, essentially reversing Kennedy's withdrawal plot from Vietnam, giving the green light for covert action against North Vietnam. Just get me reelected. I'll give you your damn war. No, this is what I was trying to say to Gavin about this. He's like, Carrie, if they really wanted to do a coup d'etat, there's so many people you would have to murder. And I said, no, Gavin, there isn't. Because really the only person who wanted the U.S. out of Vietnam was John F. Kennedy. And who takes his place upon his death? Lyndon Baines Johnson, who doesn't give a shit if they want to play war games. He just wants to be president. Exactly. So he's not going to stand in their way. I can't believe it. They killed him because he wanted to change things. In our time. Well, they've been doing it in all our country. History. Kings are killed, Mr. Garrison. Politics is power. Nothing more. Oh, don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. Do your own work, your own thinking. When he goes, testify, and Donald Sutherland chuckles and is like, not a chance in hell. No, seriously. <laughs> what is the point of any of this if he cannot testify? Uh, he goes, I'd be arrested and gagged and maybe sent to an institution. Worse, maybe you too. You're the only person to bring a trial in the murder of John Kennedy. That's important. It's historic. And... Garrison's like, well, I don't really, I don't really have much of a case, you know, and all oh, like, my witnesses keep dying. But X is like, listen, you're going to have to find one. You don't have a choice anymore. You've become a significant threat to the national security structure. They would have killed you already, but you're in the spotlight. Mm. So now they're going to do everything they can to discredit you. Your only chance is to come up with some sort of a case. You've got to stir the shitstorm and hope to reach a point of critical mass that'll start a chain reaction of people coming forward and the government will crack. People are suckers for the truth and the truth is on your side. No, it's not! <laughs> X, this is all hearsay! <laughs> it is! I like it. It's all hearsay! It's double hearsay because it's proudy <laughs> and then it's Oliver Stone! I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, guys. Turn your volume. Listen to this at half volume. <laughs> and we get this sequence with Garrison about to cry at the eternal flame at John F. Kennedy's gravesite in Arlington National Cemetery. I could not care less. With the John Williams playing in the back. <laughs> and oh, I'm just so sad for America. Meanwhile, there's an old slaveholder's house in the background. I, I just shut and up. Also, speaking of people being arrested... We see the arrest of Clay Shaw, charged with conspiracy and entering into an agreement with other persons for the purpose of committing the murder of President John F. Kennedy. Mr. Shaw, sir, you are under arrest. Charged with conspiracy and entering into an agreement with other persons for the specific purpose of committing the crime of murder of President John F. Kennedy. We have a warrant to search the premises. It's my duty to inform you at this time 
Garrison did serve the warrant. Well, not himself, but you know what I'm saying. He had the balls. Guys, he has no case. He doesn't! Guys, and I'm telling you, in reality, when Clayshaw was arrested, it shocked everybody. Yeah. No one could believe Garrison had the big Louisiana balls <laughs> to actually arrest this man on little to no evidence. All hearsay of incredible witnesses. The moment that Shaw is arrested, all of this discrediting press starts to leak out about how Garrison and his team are not to be trusted. They're playing fast and loose with the law, which is not entirely a lie. When we see Clay Shaw getting booked, he is asked by the officer who is filling out the form if he's ever used an alias. Which is a routine question and, on intake. And he says, Clay Bertrand. Name, first, middle, and last, Clay Laverne Shaw. Address, 1313 Dauphine Street, New Orleans. Ever use any aliases? Clay Bertrand. He was honest. Yes. He says Clay Bertrand. This will unfortunately come back to haunt us. That's why I had to put it in there. And yeah, it, yeah, like you said, as soon as the arrest happens, there's this campaign to discredit all the way up to Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Earl Warren, yeah. who is played by, by Jim Garrison. Garrison. When I saw him on the steps of the courthouse, yeah. looking like he was operated by Jim Henson's Creature Shop, yeah. just dead behind the eyes, I was like, wow. Garrison has presented absolutely nothing publicly which would contradict our findings. I know of no fact which would refute the commission's conclusion that Lee Oswald was the lone killer. Reaction to Chief Do you think that tasted nasty in his mouth? And when he was saying it Oh, on no, camera? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> he, was, he looks like he's about to choke on it. That reporter that's swamping Garrison and going, do you realize you're damaging the credibility of the government, possibly destroying it? Let me ask you, is a government worth preserving when it lies to the people? Oh, yeah. How are you trying to convince us to become a dangerous country, sir, when you cannot trust anyone anymore, when you cannot tell the truth? We cut to us watching coverage of the assassination of Martin Luther King. Which, that's just another CIA thing. And what, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that's another podcast. It's entirely possible, and I'm much, I am much more willing to believe the CIA had MLK taken out than John F. Kennedy. I just am. <sighs> anyway, while they're watching the TV as a family, <gasps> little Virginia <gasps> answers the telephone because she's it's a, ringing. She's a little girl. And there's some on the other end saying that her daddy is entering her in a beauty contest and would she like to be in it. That sounds fun. Can you get off Honey, Three o'clock every day. Okay, Virginia, that's all I need to know. I'll Mommy, I'm gonna be in a beauty contest. Who is this? Who is this? Hello? And it's too late by the time Liz realizes that Virginia is on the phone with a stranger who hangs up when she asks who it is. And when she brings this to Jim, he shrugs it off as a oh, crank call. No, he is pissing me off because this is literally how this happens. Garrison is brushing it off because he gets crank calls at the office all day. This, Fine. this man is asking her this little girl's measurements. Yeah. 
like, what do you look like? Yeah. So that we know who you are when we come to abduct you. Yeah. And I, I, I was filled with rage. I'm already filled with rage, but it just, that took me over the top. When Liz comes into his office where he's watching footage of the M- assassination of MLK, and he's like, honey, honey, there are more important things. Oh, no, yeah. And- oh, oh, are you kidding me? An argument ensues. Liz says, I'm done. I'm taking the kids. I'm leaving. And the kids can hear them. They're watching. And she goes, before this Kennedy thing, nothing mattered more than your children, Jim. Oh, my God. The other night, Jasper tried talking to you. Didn't even notice he was there. He came to me bawling his little ass out. <laughs> I'm loving your Liz. And, like, I, it could be better. but like, No, these kids are literally watching their parents' marriage deteriorate <laughs> in front of them. I can't fight you and the whole world, too, Liz. You've changed. Of course I've changed. My eyes are open. Everything that used to look normal now looks insane. And I identify with that. I truly do. I know, but like... But... The thing is... I don't know what what it is about me that makes me hyper fixate on this, but I feel for those children. They just don't want their family to implode. Oh, I know. And they're basically having to listen to their father admit... That this conspiracy is more important to him than they are. Yeah, like, when she goes, when he goes, can't you see how everything's connected? And she's like, no, Jam, I'm a woman, and it's 1968. Oh, my God. Give me a couple more years for women's (laughs) lib to get around. Oh, my God. And I want my, I love this line so much. I want my life back. (laughs) So do I, God damn it. You can't just bury your head like some goddamn ostrich. It's not about our well-being. My life is fucked, and if you would look at this, you could see your life is fucked, too. You never talked to me this way before, Jimmy. If you don't want to support me, fine. I can understand that, but don't go start making threats about taking the children. I'm not making any threats. I'm leaving you. Don't make any threats. I'm taking Go on, then. Fine, get out. I am! Go hide somewhere. Join the rest of them. They'll tell you I'm crazy. You get plenty of people to tell you I'm crazy. Those two little kids standing in the hallway. And not only is his family life imploding, but Garrison is rapidly, at least by the narrative of this film, losing control over his staff. Everybody in the house was yelling before, now everybody's yelling in a meeting because there are camps being formed on whether or not this is an actual conspiracy or whether this is just all well to do about nothing. Well, it's because they've made the arrest and they still don't have a case. Yes! And like Bill is like, listen, I'm I'm kind of done here. Well, that's the thing. Their, their subpoenas are being declined by federal judges for testimony of federal officers. And that's got everybody in a tizzy. Because that's unheard, unprecedented. It's unheard of for them. And Susie claims that Oswald went to see the FBI two weeks before the assassination, leaving a note for someone to stop questioning his wife Marina when he was not present. And then apparently this note got flushed down the toilet or something because guess what? It's not verifiable. Well, that's fucking convenient. And this is making Garrison angry. It's making me angry. Garrison was famous for this in real life. He would get very angry when shit didn't have anything backed up. Ah, I see where you get it. And with the way Garrison's standing up going, come on, people, can we grasp at some straws here? That's basically what he's saying. Like, he goes, we can raise the possibility that Oswald was an informant and that he may have been the original uh, sender of Kennedy... 
that he may have mm, and that he may have been the original source for the telex dated November 17th 1963 warning that Kennedy might be killed in Dallas Texas on Friday the 22nd which that was the first time that showed up in this movie they're referencing it like they've already brought it up and they, they haven't, haven't. I, they haven't. I see. Ah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what? And it, yeah, the telex says a revolutionary group may attempt to assassinate Kennedy on his trip to Texas. And Bill, good old Bill Broussard, says he doesn't buy that the FBI is involved in covering this up, which is an intentional misdirection given that he was approached before the misdirect sequence by that FBI agent and taken away in his car. Yeah. And the film is trying to get you to believe that Bill is a mole mm-hmm. for the FBI. Which... Who knows? Not verifiable. Not verifiable. Because guess what? Bill Broussard's dead. Yeah. So. And I think it could also just be something as simple as, I've grown up here. (laughs) I've lived through some of the worst shit this country has to offer. I don't want to believe that my friggin' government is working against us. This was a military-style ambush from start to finish. This was a coup d'etat with Lyndon Johnson waiting in the wings. Oh, okay, so now you're saying Lyndon Johnson was involved. Uh, The President of the United States. I know this, Bill. Lyndon Johnson got one billion dollars for his Texas friend Brown and Root to dredge Comron Bay for the military in Vietnam. Boss, boss, are you calling the President a murderer? If I'm so far from the truth why is the fbi bugging our offices huh why are witnesses being bought off and murdered i love bill this is louisiana chief how the hell do you know who your daddy is because your mama told you so but you know what bill mamas also lie they do they absolutely do not all mamas (laughs) hashtag not all mamas mamas. but like yeah mothers may lie to you about who your daddy is it's not a good metaphor bill literally is like (laughs) you are take it's not a good metaphor bill says you're out there taking a crap in the wind boss and i'm not going along with this one and storms the fuck out and lou is also out because lou is sick of bill's ass and he's like if you don't fire him then i'm out and garrison doesn't like ultimatums the rest of the team's like hey we don't really trust bill and garrison's like i'm not gonna tolerate the infighting i've seen him copying files leaving here late at night i just plain don't trust you two didn't hear what i said now i said i will not tolerate infighting among the staff. I'm afraid I cannot work with Bill Broussard anymore. Are you giving me an ultimatum, Lou? What? Are you giving me an ultimatum? Well, if that's what you want to call it, I guess I am. Well, I will not have any damn ultimatums put to me, Lou. I'll accept your resignation. And, like, Garrison's just like, all right, goodbye. Yeah, he goes, fuck you, you're done. I will accept your resignation. You are one stubborn son of a bitch. That's truth. It is Jim truth. Garrison? Absolutely. <laughs> one stubborn son of a bitch. He would not let this out of his teeth. And then we're getting the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. I... And it's all just compounding. And it's all too horrible. And he climbs into... Be- oh, my nation is dying. This is due to be felt, is the thing. No, that's the thing, is that Garrison is at the end of his rope, and I feel like this assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Kennedy's little brother, is just validating all of his worst instincts about what's going on. They're just going to take out anybody and everybody who wants to make changes in this country, Yeah, and he is breaking down. 
Also, it's absolute bullshit that he would have heard the assassination on television. It wasn't recorded. Oliver Stone is so funny from a historical perspective. Because when you know the things that have actually happened in history and how they actually happen, in the way the artist uses dramatic license, it just gives you such an ick. Like, (laughs) I giggle at him. I really do. It was a horrible moment. It was a horrible moment. It was very hard for 60s Americans to compartmentalize that so many public figures had been murdered for daring to change things. They were right to be afraid that their civilization was turning into a shooting gallery. Too bad that's actually what we live in today. Yeah. All right, here we are. The fucking incident. We're going to do our best to get through this, okay, folks? (laughs) Bear with us. Oh, and we're walking up the steps, and it's March 1st, 1969, and the John Williams music is playing in the background. Courtroom's piling up, Clay Shaw's entering, his attorney, and oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. Criminal District Court of Orleans Fair Section H is now in session with the Honorable Judge Edward A. Haggerty Jr. presiding. I like Haggerty because he's literally coming in, cigarettes still in hand. Yeah. He's like, I gotta get one out before this starts. It's the way they immediately put Willie O'Keefe up there. Remember the male sex worker from uh, Angola Penitentiary? Whose testimony is unreliable at best. These first few witnesses is all about establishing... Clay Shaw as Clay Bertrand, which is the alias used in the supposed conspiracy to murder Kennedy, right? Yes. And so Shaw's lawyer is tearing these witnesses down one by one, as he should, because it's easy. Like, they put a heroin addict on the stand who says he saw Oswald with Shaw. They're trying to establish that Clay Shaw was using this alias, and when they put Dean Andrews up on the stand... John Candy. Yeah, because Shaw was the one that supposedly called this Dean Andrews lawyer... To represent Lee Harvey Oswald? Yeah, I remember that from part one. The cat's stealing you. The oyster's shucking you, I told him. You got the right ta-ta, but the wrong ho-ho. Bertrand is not shot. Scout's honor. And you can tell him I said so. Objection, your honor. This office has won a conviction of perjury against Dean Andrews on this matter. Exception taken. That case is on appeal. How is he allowed to wear those sunglasses up there on the stand? That's what I'm saying, right? (laughs) And they call the officer that interviewed Shaw on arrest. And the judge then asks the jury to leave the courtroom because Shaw didn't have his lawyer present when he was questioned by this officer. This is why you insisted on bringing up the fact that upon intake, after arrest, Shaw was asked a routine question by the intake officer, have you used any aliases? And... Artfully, I may say, Shaw's defense is saying that cannot be entered into evidence because those are facts that can be used against him and his lawyer was not present. And yeah, and Garrison flips his lid when <laughs> Haggerty asks the jury to leave the courtroom and he's like, Fendant did not have his lawyer present when asked. From Tom M. Moore, it's been standing book and procedure to ask an alias. I call him as I see it. Ever use any aliases? Shaw. Burton. Mr. Shaw, what do you have to say? There's no constitutional requirement that there's a lawyer has I'm to be present it for inadmissible. I'm ruling it inadmissible. Well, hell, that's our case. If that's your case, you didn't have a case. You don't understand. That's my case. Well, then you didn't have much of a case, Jimbo. If that's your case, you didn't have a case, says Haggerty. <laughs> and so, you know, 
They put Shaw on the stand, and he's denying everything, meeting everyone Garrison's bringing up, anyone connected with this case, anyone Garrison has interviewed. He denies being Clay Bertrand. Yeah. Even though he said it to Haberhorst. <laughs> I think that's that officer's name. Aloysius Haberhorst? Haberhorst or whatever. Settle down, Louisiana. And guys, here we go. This is a rabbit hole of nuts. Prove there was a conspiracy involving Clay Shaw. We must first prove that there was more than one man involved in the assassination. To do that, we must look at the Zapruder film, which my office has subpoenaed. The American public has not seen that film because it has been kept locked away in a vault for the last five years in the Time Life building in New York City. We're gonna watch the fucking Zapruder film. Do you think Abraham Zapruder had any idea how friggin' famous he would become just because he wanted to get some shots of the president driving by. The government did get that film right away from him. Uh-huh. Like, when he went on TV and said, yeah, I shot some pictures, the government landed on his ass and said, give that to me. <laughs> and it wasn't Ooh. seen by the American public at large. Until this moment! Well, at large, until 1975. Oh, okay, you're right. At large meaning the public, not the people who are in this courtroom. And yeah, Garrison did subpoena the Zapruder film, and he did show it to this courtroom. Yeah, the way this entire courtroom now has to watch their president's head come apart and his poor wife chase his skull fragments off the back of that car. It's very rough for everyone to see this. People in these times didn't really see images or films of a man dying like that. Yeah. And can I just say one thing as we go forward here? Abraham Zapruder and his associate from his place of business who was with him shooting the movies that day. Oh, up on that little pedestal. Yeah. Right up by the grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. Right up by the fence. Mm-hmm. Neither one of those people say they heard anything come over from their right shoulder. Right. I get it. They were standing right there. I'm sorry, they would have heard something. The time frame 5.6 seconds established by the Zapruder film left no possibility of a full shot. So the shot or fragment that left a superficial wound on Take's cheek had to come from one of the three bullets fired from the sixth floor of the depository. That leaves just two bullets. And we know one of them was the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy. So now a single bullet remains. All right, this is where we have to get into the magic bullet theory. Please explain as much as you are able because I had to back this section of the trial up three times and I'm still not sure I have all the relevant information. The magic bullet theory is complete bullshit and the film is presenting it as complete bullshit, but it's the way that they didn't justify how it actually happened. Garrison is attributing its bullshit to a larger agenda here rather than concealed facts that can be verified about what happened. The film just completely misrepresents the facts of what could possibly have happened that day ballistically. Sorry, they say that this bullet, which is attributed to the second shot that injured both Kennedy and Governor Conley of Texas, right? You know, they say that this this magic bullet was supposedly found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital that supported Governor Conley because it fell out of his thigh. That's true. But it, it wasn't pristine the way the film says it was. In real life, that bullet was flattened. It was not pristine. It did pass through Kennedy's back, out his throat, through Governor Connolly's back, 
out his lung, into his wrist, and then into his thigh. It shattered his wrist. Like, never in the history of gunfire has there been a bullet this ridiculous, says Garrison. (laughs) Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. (laughs) But use your eyes, your common sense. And that is what I am asking the audience of this film to do (laughs) right now with a little extra research because you cannot rely on this film as gospel for the Kennedy assassination. This is how the shooting happened. Oh, what we're about to dramatize here? Or are you about to tell us what... I'm about to tell you what I believe actually happened and is widely held that actually happened on that day. As you were. First bullet misses the president entirely. Oswald, I think, was a little shaky, and that bullet went way beyond the car to strike the concrete of the sidewalk down by the overpass on Elm Street, where James Tagg was standing. That little fragment of concrete flew up off the sidewalk and cut his cheek. It jumped up and bit him. Yeah. And then the second shot goes through Kennedy's upper right back, out his throat, into Governor Conley's back, It comes out about an inch below his nipple, and it hits his wrist because he was turned sharply to the right, and he was holding his Stetson hat when that shot hit him. And it shattered his wrist and deflected off his wrist and buried itself in his left thigh. That's the shot that we don't see the impact of because that's when Kennedy's car is passing behind that road sign that's there. We see it hit Ken- We see it hit Connolly, but not Kennedy. Yeah, they react at the exact same time. And again, I'm sorry, that bullet ping-ponging through Connolly's system, it would not be pristine. That dog does not hunt. Yeah. <laughs> I swear to God. He says that one bullet could not cause all seven wounds in Kennedy and Connolly. But once you're willing to admit that, then you have to admit there's a second shooter. And if there was a second rifleman, then by definition, there had to be a conspiracy, which we believe involves the accused Clay Shaw. 51 witnesses, gentlemen of the jury, thought they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, which is to the right in front of the president. I believe that this bullet, this second shot, caused all seven of these wounds. I believe it's entirely possible, especially for a marksman of Lee Harvey Oswald's capability. And again, you know, in that documentary we watched, we looked at his marksman card. He was a pretty decent, if not great shot. And the thing that they leave out of this movie, which is included in every other JFK documentary, is the positions in which both men were seated in the open car. It makes sense. Because when Garrison reenacts it, he's using a, a pool cue or something, a long dowel rod, to demonstrate the trajectory. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, wound number two, where it waits 1.6 seconds presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. And he says that it's impossible that a bullet would have entered Kennedy's back and then entered Connolly at the trajectory it did. When in fact, because this is a specific type of car designed so you can still get a good look at Kennedy if you're facing the car head on, Connolly, in front of JFK, is seated lower than he is. 
You know what I'm saying? Yes. So it makes sense the trajectory coming through Kennedy's back and into Connolly at the angle that it did. But they leave out that disparity in height between them in the car. Yes. That would have helped make that make sense. And then he has this whole scale model of Dealey Plaza brought into the courtroom. Oh, it's so dramatic. To demonstrate his 51 witnesses from <laughs> Dealey Plaza. And like witnesses, he keeps saying witnesses said they heard shit coming from the grassy knoll. And guys, yeah, maybe they did. They found all those cigarette butts behind the fence back there in the rail yard. Maybe that's the smoke they saw. Yeah. And maybe the shots they heard from over there was the echo from a rifle report Going up the grassy knoll. Yeah, guys, I the house I live in, it's very close to other houses. And sometimes shit that is happening in front of my house, I think is happening in the backyard because of the way sound travels. And not only that, but I'm sorry. Witness testimony is already wildly unreliable. And then the nature of this event was incredibly traumatic. People thought they were being shot at. Their testimony to me is just not super reliable. Maybe there were no people up behind that fence once that happened because they all freaked out when they saw the president get shot. Yeah! Maybe they ran away. Maybe that was all the running Lee Bowers testified to seeing in the rail yard. Yeah, people were running away because they thought they were being shot at. And then we come to the president's autopsy. Oh! It is, in fact, very shrouded in secrecy. But I believe that it would almost have to be at that level. They'd already broken Texas state law to get the body out of Texas. Of course they're going to treat this with the utmost secrecy. And yeah, confusion is going to come out of that. I've seen some of these autopsy photos. They're trying to claim that his throat wound is an entry wound. It's not. It's an exit wound. We should all know enough to know, at least about ballistics, that exit Exit wounds are always bigger than entry wounds. Because that's the thing, right? Claiming that the throat wound is an entry wound is asinine because they didn't have the technology to determine that kind of thing at the time. It would be painfully obvious if the photograph was faked. Like, I've got to say that the body they've created for the film, like, whether it's an actor or a really great, like, wax dummy, it's really good. It really (laughs) does look like President Kennedy. Yikes. And when he's questioning that doctor... That military doctor on the stand, I don't have a name. But he performed the autopsy. Or part of it, at least. He worked with the president's body at Bethesda Base near Washington, D.C. He says, listen, I was just taking orders from military men at the autopsy, and he can't remember who all was there. There were so many men in that room beside him, besides him, who had nothing to do with the autopsy. They're just standing around watching. And they were basically all swore to secrecy. As a pathologist, it was your obligation to explore all possible causes of death, was it not? I had the cause of death. Your Honor, I would ask you to direct the witness to answer my question. Why did Colonel Fink not dissect the tract of the bullet wounds? Obvious tricky. Well, I heard Dr. Hume stating that. That's enough. That's enough. It's duly noted. Garrison then moves on to impressing upon the jury how quickly everything was cleaned up after the assassination. The car being cleaned immediately. Connolly and Kennedy's clothing being cleaned immediately. It stinks. It does stink. I, I, and that all did happen. At LBJ's order? Uh, That's what they claim. I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, but that's what they claim in the film. He makes such a big deal out of the president's brain disappearing. Guys, when they were done investigating the body, they disposed of the brain. They threw it away. They have no more further use for it. I... I get it. That is that is a detail that people make a stink about that really there is no there there. That is standard procedure. He tells the jury notes about the autopsy have been destroyed, but has no evidence of that. 
They're not there. Yeah, like... So were they destroyed or were they not taken? What's the truth? He, he throws his hands up and goes, let's speculate, shall we? Which a court loves. <laughs> ah! And then Garrison starts putting together exactly how he thinks this happened on the day of the shooting in terms of the logistics, saying that those people that were seen by Lee Bowers in the rail yard and like the man using the umbrella as a signal for the shooters moving into the book depository and the Daltex building and on the grassy knoll. They're ready. Kennedy's motorcade makes a turn from Maine onto Houston. It's gonna be a turkey shoot. They don't shoot him coming up Houston, which is the easiest shot for a single shooter in the book depository. They wait. They wait till he gets to the killing zone between three rifles. What's really interesting about the bulk of this trial sequence is that it's really not, in majority, an examination of actual evidence or listening to witness testimony. Most of this 20-minute-long scene is Garrison speaking directly to the jury. And I'm sorry, it must be his either opening or closing statement. I feel like it's closing statement because if it were actual cross-examination and Garrison was just saying these things to the jury, Shaw's defense attorneys should have rightly been interrupting every five minutes, Your Honor, the DA is testifying. And then he really gets into it, right? The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238. The fourth shot, it misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Head down by the underpass. And then he begins to play the Zapruder film and really take you through his idea of exactly how this went. Guys, this is insane and patently ridiculous what he's presenting to the jury. At least in parts. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313 takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository. Again, back to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Okay. Yeah, no. So we've talked about that second shot, right? Because the first shot was the shot that hit Tag. Sorry. And there's only three shots, guys. I'm sorry. That's what I'm... Not four, as Garrison claims. That's what I'm willing to... He just claimed there were seven! (laughs) No, 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 no. There's seven wounds. No, Carrie. He just claimed there were seven different bullets. Okay. I, I, I literally have to trust you, but go ahead. And so, I've already told you how it probably actually happened... It's this last shot he's focusing on right now, the headshot. Back and to the left. He believes that since Kennedy's body, visibly in the Zapruder film, goes back and to the left when he gets the headshot, that that means it must have come from the front and right, opposite of back and left. This is ballistically asinine. 
Yeah, we know just from watching true crime docs that entry wounds are always cleaner than exit wounds. It's because the higher velocity a bullet is moving, the cleaner the wound. When a bullet travels through any kind of tissue, it slows down, making the exit wound a lot messier. If you watch the Zapruder film, the front of his head explodes. And yet Garrison continues to claim the autopsy photos are fake. Because he's saying the back of the head was blown out, not the front. But clearly in the Zapruder film, which he is using as evidence, you can clearly see it's the front of Kennedy's head that explodes, not the back. There are also doctors, though, on the stand at some point that say, yeah, the back half of his head was missing. So, yeah, I get it. I get it, bud. I get it. But we don't know if that's true. We don't know if that actually happened in Clayshaw's trial. Like, (laughs) anyway, that asshole took that rifle to work with him that morning. That is a fact. Lee Harvey Oswald ordered that rifle, the rifle that was proven to have been the one used in the murder. Ballistically. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Ballistically. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oswald ordered that rifle under the alias A. Heidel. That firearm belonged to him. The man who drove him to work that morning said he had it with him. He didn't know it was the rifle, but it literally couldn't have been anything else. It was a long object wrapped up in paper, which he claimed to be curtain rods. Why the fuck are you taking curtain rods to work? Here's my question, though. Why would he hide it on the other side of the loft where he fired from? Why not just take it? I know what they say in The Godfather. Leave the gun, take the cannoli, but... I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay, all right. I I said to myself, I don't know why Oswald would have left the rifle at the scene of the crime. He hid it well. It took him a while to find it. But I don't understand why he thought that would never come back on him. But I do understand that he needed to hide it because he can't just leave the Texas School Book Depository with a rifle after just shooting the president. Yeah, I, I yeah, I guess. It's just, it's just it that's feels... Why, that's why he hid it. It feels like world's dumbest criminals to me, though, to just hide it across the room, but... Whatever. And Garrison, you know, he's constantly casting aspersions on whether or not Oswald could do the shooting at all. The movie continuously says Oswald was not capable of doing the shooting, when in fact, he was. That is not true. He was an excellent marksman. When he was tested in the Marine Corps, he got nearly all perfect scores, missing one or two from exercise to exercise. He says pandemonium ensues. And yes, guys, we're going to have to talk about Oswald's movements now. I hate this. Oswald was encountered very shortly after... After the assassination, four floors below the sixth floor. The thing is, in reality, guys, Oswald did leave immediately. You want to know why? Because he was the shooter. <laughs> he, but Garrison he, is commenting on how he took his sweet time. He was the only employee who left the building that day, guys. Really? He was the only employee who was unaccounted for in the Texas School Book Depository. Okay. So when they honed it, when law enforcement honed in on that building, they counted everybody. Mm-hmm. Guess who was the only person who was able to slip out in the middle of all the pandemonium? Was it Oswald? It was Oswald. Assuming he is the sole assassin, Oswald is now free to escape from the building. The longer he delays, the more chance the building will be sealed by police. Is he guilty? Does he walk out the nearest staircase? No. He buys a Coke. And at a slow pace, spotted by Mrs. Reed on the second floor, he strolls out the more distant front exit, where the cops have gathered. Like, Garrison keeps saying that 
everybody who, quote, observed him on his way out of the depository, they say he's not out of breath. He doesn't look panicked. None of this stuff. He doesn't go out the nearest exit. He goes out of one that's way across the way that is not the most sensible exit. And guys, I really don't care about that. Because if he is the lone shooter... What's logical is to not act panicked because there's law enforcement crawling the area. He's also military trained to shut down. Yeah. So. So that that just makes sense to me whether or not he was involved. He goes back to his apartment. After leaving the depository, he gets a revolver. And when he's approached by Officer J.D. Tippett, he shoots him because he's scared to death. It's also a useful conclusion after all. Why else would Oswald kill Tippett unless he'd just shot the president and feared arrest? But going back to what you just said about the military training, why would he panic about that over a lone cop? Because he thought the cop was going to take him in because there was a description of him out on the wires after he was not accounted for at the depository. Okay, okay. And... You know, he goes and pretends to shop and then hides in a movie theater. He doesn't have any money. He gave all his money to Marina the night before. And even though they claim he had money in his pocket, he didn't. It's just a stupid lie to tell for the sake of the film. The store clerk reports him because he's heard his description on the on the radio and they find him in the movie theater. And that's why all of Christendom of Cops descends upon that movie theater. Garrison is making the point that Oswald was a patsy and the police allowed Jack Ruby to murder Oswald so that he could never talk. Hitler always said, the bigger the lie, the more people will believe it. Lee Harvey Oswald, a crazed, lonely man who wanted attention and got it by killing a president, was only the first in a long line of patsies. In later years, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, men whose commitment to change and peace would make them dangerous to men who are committed to war would follow. Also killed by such lonely, crazed men. Men who remove our guilt by making murder a meaningless act of a loner. We're hearing a lot of names in this section of Garrison's narrative. Yeah. You know what name I'm not hearing? What? Clay Shaw. Exactly. Exactly. He's gone so beyond the plot, Carrie. Like... At the point when, I I don't know. At the end of the day, who's the one sitting at the defense table? It's Clay Shaw. Who's on trial right now, Carrie? Clay Shaw. (laughs) This is a 21-minute sequence, this trial. And in 21 minutes, I swear to God, I think he only names Clay Shaw three times. At least in the narrative we're getting. But, like, it's Garrison. What are you on about? Jim Garrison is embarking on wrapping all of this up for us, right? And this piece of writing is a very good piece of writing. It's very beautifully and eloquently put, which is part of why I like the movie. His, For the craft. His whole point, Oliver Stone's whole point here, is that it's fundamentally important as human beings to question power and to constantly question power because when we don't do that the things the government and the powers that be get away with are so unspeakably ugly and things will be done in the dark and never be brought to light very good that's a johnny cash reference we've all become hamlets in our country children of a slain father leader whose killer still possess the throne the ghost of john f kennedy confronts us with the secret murder at the heart of the american dream He forces on us the appalling questions of what is our Constitution made? 
What is our citizenship and more our lives worth? What is the future of a democracy where a president can be assassinated under conspicuously suspicious circumstances while the machinery of legal action scarcely trembles? The American public is yet to see the real x-rays and photographs of the autopsy. Why? There are hundreds of documents that could help prove this conspiracy. Why are they being withheld or burned by the government? Each time my office or you, the people, have asked those questions, demanded crucial evidence, the answer from on high has always been national security. What kind of national security do we have when we've been robbed of our leaders? It is kind of crazy to me that in about 15 years' time, we may have all the answers. And we probably won't. And that's what I said to myself as I was typing. I'm like, in 2038, when these documents are all declassified, we may have the answers. That is, if they haven't been scrubbed or destroyed. Garrison says it might become a generational affair. Something that we tell, you know, mother to daughter and father to son, <laughs> all the way down, Daddy, who really killed JFK? And... S- The answer might always be that we will never really know, and that's incredibly frustrating. I submit to you that what took place on November 22nd, 1963, was a coup d'etat. Its most direct and tragic result was the reversal of President Kennedy's commitment to withdraw from Vietnam. The war is the biggest business in America worth $80 billion a year. President Kennedy was murdered by a conspiracy that was planned in advance at the highest levels of our government, and it was carried out by fanatical and disciplined cold warriors in the Pentagon and CIA's covert operation apparatus, among them Clay Shaw here before you. It was a public execution, and it was covered up by like-minded individuals in the Dallas Police Department, the Secret Service, the FBI, and the White House, all the way up to including J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson whom I consider accomplices after the fact. Now, some people say I'm crazy. <laughs> I, I, I do! I do! That's all insane. When he, when he implicates the president and Haggerty has to hold his head. Oh, no. Shaw is giggling yeah. to himself yeah. at the defense table because Garrison has gone off the rails. I'm not saying that LBJ didn't play a part in all of this, he either probably didn't. I, I don't know, man. He really wanted you to were be just president. Telling me the other day that you didn't think he was smart enough for that. Um, I no, I don't think he was smart enough to orchestrate it. I think you he just went along with. He it. went along with it because he wanted to be president. He really just wanted to be president and didn't care how it happened. And you are allowed to believe what you believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. When he says, oh, I'd hate to be in your shoes today, gentlemen of the jury. You're <laughs> about to do something immense. So immense. Burn it down and start again. This is about whether Clay Shaw is complicit. Yeah. This isn't about whether this is a conspiracy. He has no evidence He's... tying Clay Shaw to this. He's like, all right, for you to believe it was a conspiracy, I have to prove to you that it was. But then after that, offer no reason or connection that can be believed that connects Clay Shaw to the conspiracy. All of his... Shaw's defense counselor ripped all of Garrison's witnesses apart. Yeah. That's because, Ross, this has never been actually about Clay Shaw. This is 
has always for Garrison been about exposing this alleged conspiracy, and he used the trial of Clay Shaw as a vehicle to tell the world and put it on the record. And then Oliver Stone made it worse. Yeah, he sure did! He certainly made it worse. When Garrison says, truth often poses a threat to power, and one often has to fight power at great risk to themselves, and all of my shitty witnesses have come forward and taken that (laughs) risk. The ones who are alive! And now Stone's making it about the people. They want their country back. It still belongs to us. No, 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 no. When Garrison picks up off the desk these letters full of dollar bills from the everyman, from the normal people in society who just want to give him money so he can find the truth the way his voice cracks because they want their country back. And as much as I'm rolling my eyes at all of this... I get it. I will give this to Oliver Stone. But he is saying things that strike very deeply within me Mm -hmm. and that I think ring true for a lot of people alive today. The world that Oliver Stone is presenting to us through the lens of the 1960s is the world that we live in today. Nobody was ready to hear this from Jim Garrison in 1969, and people definitely weren't willing to hear it in 1991. I feel like only now are people able to see this vision for what it really is. And you know why that is? Because of the internet. It's because people are seeing and getting information faster than they ever capable of doing, both in 69 and in 91. This is a great piece of writing. Garrison says, If the truth does not endure, if government murders truth, if we cannot respect the hearts of the people, this country is not the country I want to die in. Tennyson wrote, Authority forgets a dying king. This was never more true than for John F. Kennedy, whose murder was probably one of the most terrible moments in the history of our country. You, the people, the jury system sitting in judgment on Clay Shaw, represent the hope of humanity against government power. In discharging your duty and bringing the first conviction in this house of cards against Clay Shaw, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Oh, quoting him, quoting JFK directly. Quoting Kennedy directly, Garrison, you know what you're doing. With the one manly tear. And here's the thing. This is Garrison, the character. That More on that in just a second. He's speaking directly to the jury, right? Yeah, when he gets choked up, Kevin Costner does give a good performance here. It's probably some of the best acting he's ever done, and that's really not saying much, but continue. Do not forget... Your dying king. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. It's up to you. Looks directly at you through the camera. Oh no, I have the time code. Two hours, 59 minutes, 22 seconds. It's up to you. And he's looking directly into the lens, which is so characteristic of propaganda, I don't even know where to begin. Oliver, that was a fantastic piece of writing. Jim Garrison never said a word of it in real life. Oh my God. I know. That's irrefucking-sponsible. It is irrefucking-sponsible. And guess what, guys? The jury leaves to deliberate... And they return a verdict for Clay Shaw of not 
guilty. And I'm like, yeah, Jim, it's because you spent the entire trial talking about everybody but him. Yeah, no, that Jim, that's what Jim Garrison did do. <gasps> that is what he did. And when the press is like mobbing both sides after the trial and they're all leaving <laughs> and Jim says he will continue this investigation for 30 years if that is what is required. Jim... Are you kidding me? We understand that the morning paper will call for your resignation, that you're unfit to hold office, that you ruined Clay Shaw's reputation. Mr. Garrison, are you going to resign? Hell no. I'm going to run again. And I'm going to win. Thank you. Who do you plan to persecute next, Mr. Garrison? If it takes me 30 years to nail every one of the assassins, then I will continue this investigation for 30 years. And, you know, we see Jim taking Liz and Jasper and walking out of the courtroom and we're going to get some on-screen text before they finally let us go. <laughs> before we finally get the sweet release of death. In 1979, Richard Helms, director of covert operations in 1963, admitted under oath that Clay Shaw worked for the CIA. So that was true. Yeah, big. it probably was the whole time. It was. <laughs> Clay Shaw died of lung cancer in 1974. No autopsy was allowed. Suspect? Suspicious. In 1978, Jim Garrison was elected judge of the Louisiana State Court of Appeals. He was re-elected in 1988. He's the only person to bring a public prosecution in the Kennedy killing. All right. <laughs> Just dial back the tone. And then it says, Southeast Asia. Two million Asian lives lost, 58,000 American lives lost, 220 billion spent, 10 million Americans airlifted there by commercial aircraft, more than 5,000 helicopters lost, six and a half trillion tons of bombs dropped. They say a congressional investigation from 1976 to 1979 found probable conspiracy in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and recommended the Justice Department investigate further. As of 1991, the department has done nothing. The files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are locked away until the year 2029. And then it says, what is past is prologue. And it says, dedicated to the young in spirit whose search for truth marches on. And yeah, that does give me a little bit of the goosies, but it really is like the whole film. I can't like... <laughs> it's fun to speculate on, guys. It's a colossal miscalculation and misrepresentation, Oliver Stone's JFK. It's a great movie in that it is fantastic propaganda for Oliver Stone's conspiracist agenda. But at the same time, guys, we will almost probably never have the evidence to confirm that it was truly a conspiracy. Well, that doesn't mean that it wasn't. Wait a minute. Didn't that on-screen text say that the documents won't be released until 2029? Yes. I, I thought it was 2038. Well, that's like the CIA and the FBI. Oh, oh two Everybody's got their own documents, Carrie. Okay. Everybody's got their own documents. Okay, I got you. I got you. We're not allowed to see Jackie O's bloodstained dress until 2103. 
I, I, I know. I know. What is that about? I... <laughs> it's kept in a special room at the National Archives that is temperature regulated. That's money. I, we are paying for Jackie O's bloodstrained Chanel suit to be housed in a windowless room. <laughs> I, okay. All right. <laughs> take my hands. It will be there for another century. Take, take, well, 80 years, but like. Take my hands. We're okay. We're, we're, we got we're... through it. It's over. <laughs> and guys, thank you for letting me scream at you that whole time. That's the thing about JFK, guys. It makes me scream. It throws so much at you. And the thing we were talking about before we came down here was if you don't have a base level knowledge of this tragedy and all of the fuck shit that goes into understanding it, a first viewing for you is not going to be conducive. I told you earlier, I had to watch this film so many times before I even could fucking put together what Oliver Stone was trying to tell me exactly. The only thing you're coming away with on that first viewing is there's something they're not telling us. It's fantastic filmmaking, guys. It's great cinema. But it's not ethical. Like, we can't focus on any of the good cinema because we're enraged about the irre-fucking-sponsibility of Oliver Stone and the misrepresentation of what is verifiable. He splices so much verifiable fact with so much unverifiable hearsay and his own ideas. It's not like he's a journalist. He's not necessarily held to an industry or moral ethical standard when it comes to his, quote, storytelling. Yeah, I guess he can do whatever he wants as a director, but like... It's it's a dramatization. We get it. The fact of the matter is, the point he is making is very important. That, yeah, there are powers in this world, principally within our own government, that are going to lie and scheme and misrepresent in order to preserve the status quo they have established. And make money. And make money. That's always remember that. And make money. Ross, what's the number one thing this country spends money on even today? The military. Exactly. And so... What did, what, did, what did we get warned at at the beginning of this movie? The military-industrial complex. Which had was just beginning to take shape. At the time, in yeah. 1963, absolutely. That's why I say the world he is presenting in this film... Is realistic. Is realistic. But more so today than back in 1963. And the thing, I think the thing we came to the point of was, yeah, it's a good point. It's something we all need to be thinking about. This is the wrong set of circumstances to hang your hat on. This was the wrong crime to do this with, Oliver Stone. And the way he has to, you know, origami certain facts in order to fit his narrative or leave them out entirely is not good. And I think what you were getting to as you were talking about a person's um, viewing or, quote, enjoyment of this material is that people who don't have a intricate knowledge of the event get embroiled in the drama and not necessarily the actual facts. This film had a profound effect on our parents' generation. Mm-hmm. It was an eye-opener for so many people. And the fact that a large amount of Stone's original audience took this film as gospel blows my mind. <laughs> no. That's why we saw in that documentary we were watching, Beyond Conspiracy, that one man, that one talking head who was like, you know, I'm convinced that the greatest historians of the 20th century are filmmakers. Uh-oh. Which, I'm sorry, is just not how it should be. I know. And I know that it's not that way as a rule, but... 
No, think about my man, Richard Belzer. Rest in peach. Who is... I knew you'd find a way to work SVU in this. <laughs> no, he was such a JFK conspiracy theorist that was so much a part of his personality that they worked it into his character on every show he was on as John Munch. Indeed. And Ross, we are living in an economy right now where dramatizations of true crime are a hot topic, a hot piece of fodder for money-making, and frankly, I'm kind of against it in principle. I know you are. There are a few exceptions, but the thing is, true crime's not supposed to be fun. No, it's not. It's supposed to be educational. This film is based on Jim Garrison's novel, On the Trail of the Assassins. Sorry, Oliver. Them's the breaks. <laughs> I've had enough. Yeah? I know you have too. What are we at? Two hours? About. <laughs> All right. I'll be shaving that down, but I, Ross, I have a headache. I know. I do too. And I'm sorry. I knew we'd be here. I knew this is where we would be. I knew, I knew, I knew our moods would be ruined. I knew our voices would be shot. And that our brains would hurt. But thank you for going through it all with me. You will never have to watch that movie again. I'm not going to make you watch any more Kennedy documentaries. It's over. Oh, it's over, isn't it? You just got to edit it all together now. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. And I love you. And if you need to call and cry about it in the middle of the editing process, I will listen to you. That's sweet of you. And you can blame me and tell me that I did this to you. You did do this to me. A little. (laughs) I mean, I am Jed Bartlett to your Leo McGarrio. You came to my house. You came to my house and said, Ross, let's do a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Jed, let's run for office. (laughs) Oh, my God. So guys, say a prayer for me. <laughs> um, well, say a prayer for me, but by the time you're hearing this, this editing process will already be over. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter, but just keep me in your thoughts. Yeah. And uh, she, she's still she's going to be working on long form when you're listening to this. Yeah, so. which brings me to my next point, which is that next week we're not doing a coverage proper. We are going to be giving you guys a sneak peek of our coverage on Patreon of Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring. (laughs) Because it's the first one, so naturally that comes first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And guys, uh, I don't know what my mental state is going to be at the time that you're hearing this, but be assured, it's a labor of love. I really hope it entices y'all to go check out what we got going on on the Patreon. Even if you sign up right now for five bucks, you're getting thousands of minutes of content instantly. Once December starts... We're going to be coming back. Do we want to announce the theme for December? We're going to do, guys, for you this December, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to switch it up a little bit because, of course, it's, you know, Christmas time. But, you know, the pagans and the Christians. And Ross refuses to do any of the Christmas movies starring old comedians he doesn't like. So we're kind of running what out of... What does that mean? You won't talk about Santa Claus with oh, Tim Allen. Well, no. And you won't talk about Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> Lots of people do. Lots of people like those movies. I don't give a fuck. I know. So Ross doesn't like those movies. So we're going to be switching it up a little bit for you. We're going to be doing some Christmas horror for you in <laughs> December. 
more quality content coming to you from Kicking and Streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, sorry, sorry Mom. Mom.